Hey friends, Ashton here, and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. We have a guest joining us again, 2.0. A couple years back, he joined us with a book he released, and he's written a number of books. This coming week, he's got a new book coming out called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, His name is John Mark Comer. A lot of you guys are familiar with his work in the world. Uh, His work's been a gift to me. Uh, uh, His writings, his teachings have brought sustainability, rest, joy, all that stuff we're all after. Um, And with that being said, he's a single dad this week, and it's book release week, (laughs) but he's here. So, uh, John Mark, welcome back. That's right. And to clarify, my wife did not leave me. I mean, she left me <laughs> physically, but not. She did not break our covenant. Just, just to clarify. Oh, I love it. I love it. So <laughs> she's out of town for a week. She is overseas, and uh, you got it going, man. Um, That's right. Thank God for community, because uh, yeah, this is you single parents. Mad respect. <laughs> for sure. So um, maybe some of our listeners weren't here a couple years back when you came on. Uh, just yep. a brief little uh, intro into who you are. When you introduce yourself and your work in the world, where do you begin? Yeah, Portland, Oregon, and uh, a lovely wife who has abandoned me for the week, but uh, hopefully not longer than that. And we have three kids. We live right in the city. Portland's a fascinating place to follow Jesus. Recent survey found us as the least religious city in America. <laughs> and uh, that's always a little bit hard to measure. For sure, it is just a very far left, very secular, very post-Christian city. And a uh, fascinating place. Barner Research just came out with some new stats. Basically, they made the case that it's harder to follow Jesus in a post-Christian city or nation than it is in a non-Christian city or nation, meaning it's harder to follow Jesus in New York or San Francisco or increasingly in Atlanta or Dallas, not Dallas maybe, but wherever, um, than it is in Pakistan or Indonesia. So really interesting time and place to follow Jesus and attempt to help others do that. Um, I planted a church with a team of people about 16 years ago now, so I've been here a little over a decade and a half just kind of on the ground in the city, attempting to um, do my best to contribute to our little community. As the years have gone by, I'm less and less the lead pastor and more and more kind of a resident pastor, teacher, writer, spiritual director, though I'm still very much involved in the leadership of our church. So really my heart and passion is all things spiritual formation, which I come into kind of through my own autobiography. And if you're not familiar with that language, that's just the process by which we become more like Jesus and more our real true self, or you could say the process by which we become more loving and joyful and a non-anxious presence in the world. That's really Jim Collins. I was listening to a a long form interview with him. He's a business, you know, writer, leader of that famous book, Good to Great. And he had this great thing. He said, pretty much anybody who works, his theory was that anybody who works in the knowledge economy has like one central question that all of their work is built around. And I thought it was a, a fascinating frame. And I immediately I thought, oh yeah, I know what mine is. Mine is how do we change? And so that's what I'm really interested in is the how of like, okay, this is incredible, you know, library of scripture, theology, vision of life in the kingdom of God. Lots of people doing really amazing work around that. Um, and so really my the, the contribution that I want to make along with a lot of other people is just the how. how. How do we actually follow Jesus? How do we become people of love and joy and peace in these crazy post-Christian, secular, busy phone, that, that I mean, all that. Yeah. So that's what I do. That's, right I, I, I tend to do that in my own life and help other people do it in theirs. Beautiful. How do we become more loving, more joyful, and uh, 
less or and non-anxious. Love it. Um, that's our work. My goodness, is it not? Um, yeah, and I guess that trifecta is not just like a feel-good trifecta. <laughs> right. um, like I'm getting that from uh, the Gospel of John and the writings of Paul. When I read the Gospel of John in particular, kind of what's called the Upper Room Discourse, those kind of last couple chapters before Jesus' crucifixion, you know, which are like big blocks of teaching from Jesus. If you just like, you know, do a word study on love, joy, and peace, you realize those three words come to the surface over and over and over, you know, and it's very, you know, John's a very kind of circular, nonlinear writer. So it's, you know, love one another, a new command I've given you, that you love one another, greater love is no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends, you know, so there's this beautiful, like, theme of love and then joy, that your joy may be full or that your joy may overflow, or this is, you know, to my father's joy, and then peace, my peace I leave with you. And then um, if I'm reading things right, Paul has that same trifecta over and over and over again in his writings. So I guess I view love and joy and peace not just as like happy emotions that we like to have, but less as emotions and more as the um, inner disposition of the heart, mm-hmm. the kind of people that we become as we are transformed in the language of the New Testament in to become like Jesus. We become people that are, are loving as defined by Jesus, not as defined by our culture, which is a pretty different definition of love, are, are joyful, not just happy, but grateful and joyful, and are a non-anxious presence. Um, and so that I think that's really like the core of life in the kingdom and transformation is becoming loving and joyful and peaceful, which in an election year sounds like we need that more than ever. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, beautiful. Well said. Um, all right. So how many books do you have out now? Is this fourth, maybe fifth, third? I don't know. This is, I have a little like self-published memoir thing that's about to go out of print. So if you count that one, this is number five. Okay, number five. So um, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Um, I, I'm seeing a, a thread through some of your, your writings recently. Um, mm. For me, the word sustainability, uh, my two words for this year were simple and quiet. Um, oh, I love it. I think... I, I think you're on that thread with these last, uh, at least the last two books, this one and the last one. Um, tell me, walk me through why this book, why now? The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Oh, man. I, I, how to nail that down, how to summarize that in, <laughs> in a, a few sentences. Yeah, I mean, it's built around the philosopher Dallas Willard's line to John Ortberg, where he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And he called hurry, quote, the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And, you know, I guess um, if you've ever had the experience of like chronic health issues or not feeling well and having all sorts of different symptoms and not knowing what was wrong, um, which has been kind of my, my wife has chronic health issues. We've had been through multiple seasons of just that and are kind of in one right now, there's this odd, wonderful, beautiful feeling when a doctor gives you a diagnosis and all of a sudden all of these like complex disparate symptoms are tied together under root cause. And it might not be the whole answer, but at least it's a answer. And it's actually really empowering, even if it's bad news, even if it's a lousy diagnosis, because you feel like, oh, okay, that's what's wrong. And now here's a pathway to fix it or deal with it or accept it. Um, Psychologists have done all this fascinating work on how 
um, people actually respond often with happiness, even when they get a, you know, um, a, a life-threatening diagnosis. They'll actually feel happy because it's easier to live with that than it is with ambiguity. So, um, which is just so counterintuitive, you know. And so, psychologists will tell a story about people getting diagnosed with cancer, or I just heard one the other day from a psychologist about somebody that was diagnosed with. Um, Oh, what's the name of it? Is it ALS? Mm-hmm. Yeah, ALS, which is, which is, it kills you. And, and this person came into the office so happy and relieved that they finally got a diagnosis. And uh, that's just so, the psychology behind that is so fascinating. And that's a whole bunch there that we could talk about, but it's mostly over my pay grade. I say that to say, I think that I just had, all, when I first heard that Willard line, you know, hurry's the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Um, it just, I felt like it was that diagnosis moment. Like I have all these different symptoms of anxiety and, you know, melancholy and exhaustion and burnout and digital distraction. And why do I spend so much time on Netflix and in my devices when I say I don't want to? And why is it so hard to like eat healthy and, you know, and why do I feel tired and why do I feel agitated all the time and angry? And why do I get sucked into outrage culture online? Like, all this stuff. Why do I feel disconnected from God at time? Why is why don't I feel like I'm becoming a person of love? And that this was at a real kind of you know existential quarter life crisis moment in my life a number of years ago. And when I heard that, I I felt like it was just the oh the diagnosis moment. Like mm-hmm. this hurry is like if not the it's one of the issues underneath all of the other issues. And once you begin to explore that terrain of what hurry does to your soul, to your capacity for love, and then why we hurry, which is that's really dangerous, really fascinating terrain, you know, because we want to just think it's because, well, we're busy and we have three kids, but it's it's almost never that simple. It's almost always much more deeper, much more psycho-spiritual, much more about deep stuff in the heart and often out of pain or insecurity or lack of self-worth. Once you begin to explore that terrain, oh man, there's so much freedom that can just open up in our experience of life with God. No doubt, no doubt. Um, Church plant, running the church, being everything that you've been over the years, of course you've mentioned that that position has morphed a bit, Uh, but you're a dad, you're a friend, you're, uh, you're a creative, you're an author, all of these things. Um, just personal reflection. What, what did you, when you finally got the diagnosis, (laughs) when you heard, oh, this is a hurry conversation, what did you start to notice in your spiritual life? Like, what did you notice? I guess my question is, what are some of the things that maybe our listeners can hear and go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, because sometimes I think we need someone to like, give us vernacular picture to really unlock this door of some of these ahas yeah. that we have. Um, yeah. For you in your own life, what what did you notice at the soul level when you were in those seasons of hurry? Well, I guess I would say the first thing was this. Just if your metric system for success in the American vernacular is not onward and upward and money and retweets, but is love and joy and peace. Again, not emotions. Becoming a person who is loving and joyful and at peace. Then I began to realize that almost all of my worst moments under that metric system, which is very different than the metric system I had before this, um, under all of my worst moments were when I was in a hurry. And all of my best moments 
were when I was at a slow pace, well rested and present to the moment. So, and, and just to clarify by hurry, I don't mean a lot to do. I mean, too much to mm-hmm. do in too little time. That's yeah. the essence of hurry. So there's, you know, we're all busy. There's a healthy kind of busyness yeah. that just means like you're giving your life away in agape self-sacrificial love, not just playing call of duty four hours a night. Mm-hmm. That's a healthy kind of busyness. Then there's a far more common kind of what Ron Wilheiser calls pathological busyness, which is this busyness most of the time rooted in unexplored deep soul terrain of you know low self-esteem, low self-worth, anxiety, running from a pain, culture narcotic, whatever the thing is, running away from something or running to something, which is why it's an addiction for most of us. And this is the kind of busyness that because it's too much, we have to speed up our mind and our body and our relationships and our interactions with other human beings to this frenetic pace that doesn't have time for love and joy and peace. So I just began to pay attention to that. I mean, love's an easy one. All of my worst moments as a husband and father and friend, not even to mention a pastor or you know teacher writer, are all when I'm in a hurry. Mm. You know, like if I just pay attention to like trying to you know a common trope in our family because I have three kids who are at those ages, you know, and my wife is super laid back and kind of comes from a warm culture, Latina. And so like time is very relative and, you know, punctuality is like, she's trying to make that a value, but it's so hard for her. And, and so like anytime I'm trying to get my family out of the house on time and we're running late, when I pay attention to what's coming out of my body, it's not love, compassion, a listening ear, solidarity, let me help you. It's get in the car right now. I don't have time to talk about it. Stop crying. Get in the car right now. You're always late. I can't, you know. And by the time we're pulling out of the driveway, I have one kid in tears and my wife and I are in a tiff, you know. So that, whatever that is, that's not love, mm-hmm. you know. My most loving moments are when I have margin, which I love. Swanson defines margin as the space between our load and our limits. When I have time to be interrupted, you know, as a, as a father, most of parenting well is how you respond in interruptions. C.S. Lewis once said something to the effect of how you respond in an interruption is who you really are. Wow. <laughs> That's wow. so convicting. And... Um, and so, you know, so much of parenting is just what happens when your kids don't schedule their pain. Neither does your spouse or your best friends. They're not like, hey, next Thursday, it's 3 p.m. Can you be present for me to have a really hard thing happen in my life? And can you listen and give me your time and your attention? Life doesn't work that way. So, I mean, and you could you could make the same case for joy, the same case for peace. When I'm most in a hurry, I'm least loving. And when I most have margin, I'm well-rested, I'm present to the moment, I'm not on my phone, that's when I am at my most compassionate, my most loving, my most wise, and my most aware, you know? And we could just keep going on down the list. Yep, good word. So, and you write this in the book, more time isn't the answer. Yeah. Um, Speak on that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I catch myself or I caught myself in the edit for a long time saying, man, I just wish there were, you know, five more hours in a day or three more days in a week or whatever. And, you know, and I, I kind of said it in jest, but if you think about the illogic of that statement, if, you know, God were to realter the structure of the universe or a scientist were to come up with a pill that made it so we only have to sleep three hours a night and all of a sudden, you know, I had five more hours in my day. If you think about it, what most of us would do, and there's historical precedent for this, 
that we can talk about. But what most of us would do is we'd just fill up those five hours with even more things. Mm -hmm. I'd start a side business and I'd write twice as many books and I'd master Hebrew and I'd take up baking and I'd, you know, and I'd write, I had all good things. I'd have more friends. I'd exercise more. I would immediately fill up those five hours with more mostly good things. And then I would be even more tired, exhausted, stretched thin, and easily distracted than I am right now. So the solution is not more time. And time is the great equalizer. I just, I've only watched one episode, but just watched the new Bill Gates, you know, documentary. And it's so that great. So yeah, good. I don't, it was fun. I, I don't know that I'll read any more, uh, watch any more, but I wanted. I'd heard a couple of people say it was so good, and so I had a night. My wife's out of town. Kids went to bed. I'm like, oh, let me. I'm gonna watch an episode, and I love. There was a great line. I think it was from his assistant, who was talking about how obsessive he is about time because time is the one thing he can't buy. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you're the richest man in the world, or I think I don't think he's the richest anymore. One of the richest men in the world, people in the world, you you don't have any more time than I have. You don't have any more time than you know somebody in the developing world. That yeah. we have 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week. It's the great equalizer. Yeah. And so the solution is not more time, and it's and I don't think the solution is necessarily, or it's an incomplete solution to like hype up your efficiency to this extreme level, which works great for work, but works terrible for relationships. I think the solution is to slow down and simplify your life around what really matters based on your metric system of success and to cut out the time, you know, carnivores of the phone and the internet and the devices, the things that just steal away so much of our time. Yeah, yeah. You familiar with Greg McCown's uh, Essentialism book? Oh, love that book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had yeah. a whole staff read it a while yeah, back. It's yeah, it's just you're coming right, right at that. You know, the, the, the undisciplined pursuit of more versus the disciplined pursuit of less. Um, yes. Yeah, oh, right. that's great. Is that his language? I've yeah. read that book. Yeah, that's it came his out language. Yeah. The undisciplined pursuit, pursuit of more versus Verse. the disciplined pursuit of less. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so good. Yeah. yeah you know, there's um, and a, a ton of this has to do with you know we're just 12 years into the phone, which is one of the reasons I think I'm writing about this now, and it's still just you know this human experiment in in digital life, and I th I think the early results are terrifying, but there's a so dude named um, Tristan Harris. Are you familiar okay. with his work out of Silicon so. Valley? Uh -uh. He was like a he was a product philosopher for Google, insider to tech, and basically kind of saw behind the curtain and realized, okay, this is an entire industry that's built around like these devices and apps are literally designed to distract us and addict us because that's where the money is. It's you know, economists call it the attention economy. We think we're the we think we're the customer. We're actually the product. We don't pay money for Instagram or whatever. We're the product. That's there's what. What it's face and what Instagram or whatever is selling yep. is our attention to marketing co companies, yep. and um, and anyway, so basically he he left it and he started this nonprofit, arguing for a basically he's he's attempting to legislate a Hippocratic oath for software designers. Um, so basically, like the the do no harm for a doctor, mm. uh, like a an ethical call for software designers. And anyway, he just talks about, he uses the analogy of slot machines and how slot machines make, something like make more money than professional baseball and uh, the film industry combined mm. or something crazy. And he said it, they make their money because you think you're not giving much money away because it's like a quarter here, yeah. a buck there, a yeah. dollar fifty there, but it's like 
eats up your money in this super deceptive way. Like credit card debt is the same way. You're like, I'll just have a coffee here. I'll just have one lunch here. I'll just buy a book here. And then you get your credit card bill and it's like $415. You're like, what? How did that? What did that even, what did I even buy? You know, or something like that. And I think that our devices are the same way. It's like, oh, I'll just jump on Instagram. Oh, I'll just text this person back. Oh, I'll just check the weather. And each time it's just, we think it's a minute or two or seven. And then at the end of the day, it's like, oh, the average person and millennials on their phone five and a half hours a day. And you're like, oh, crap. What's that doing to me? Gradually, then suddenly. You know, that's the phrase we use in our house all the time. Um, So let me ask you this. Some sustainable things that we can implement or some little changes that we could do to create this space, this margin, more joy in our lives. Um, Where would you begin for some of our listeners today? Yeah, well, in the second half of my book, so the first half of the book is basically my case for case against hurry and for a life of slow presence and love and joy and peace and all sorts of reading and research and science and journalism and history and theology and spiritual tradition behind all of that. And the second half of the book is really um, just is for what I call four practices for unhurrying your life. And I just picked out four practices from the way of Jesus or if you prefer spiritual disciplines that I think have the most potential to mitigate against the hurry and noise and materialism and stress and anxiety of life in the modern world. So the four are silence and solitude, Sabbath, simplicity, and slowing. And I kind of have a chapter on each, case for each, and then I have a little digital companion that's for free. It comes with the book that has like exercises, literally to go from I have no idea what Sabbath is to here is how you do it, and now I'm into it you know, several weeks in or whatever. So um, those are the four that I have found the most helpful. I definitely think um, – so one of the classic books in the spiritual discipline in the modern era is The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, which is, I think, 1978, I want to say, and sold a couple million copies, which is bizarre if you think about a book on spiritual disciplines as a <laughs> multi-million seller. But um, in his framework, and I think he's getting this from Willard, I'm not sure if, if it started with them or somebody else. I, I don't know the etymology exactly of this framework. But they basically divide the spiritual disciplines into two categories, um, disciplines of abstinence and disciplines of engagement. So if you look at Jesus' life, all, all the practices are, spiritual disciplines are, just little habits that are based on the life and teachings of Jesus, but in particular on his lifestyle, on the kind of the details of his day-to-day life, like how he would actually live, what was the structure of life, or if you prefer, rule of life, that this incredible, stunning life came out of, right? And again, evangelicals often don't think that way. They just think, well, he was God, so he was amazing. But we forget that the gospel, which is true, but the gospels are biographies. They tell us not just miracle stories and teachings and about cross and resurrection. They tell us about how Jesus spent his morning, his weekend what his Sabbath was like, how he handled money, how he did relationships and friendship, how he handled pain, you know, and fear. Like, is there, there, all that's in there, and often we just ignore it. So I think when you, when you look at Jesus' paradigm, you would see he had, like, 
whatever you want to call it, withdrawal and return or abstinence and engagements, there are times that he would slip away and then times when he'd come back and engage. So some of the disciplines of abstinence are like fasting is the ultimate example where you abstain from food or Sabbath where you abstain from work or science and solitude when you abstain from noise and people. And then disciplines of engagement are like church. You go to church, you worship, you engage God, you open the scriptures, you pray, you know, intercessory prayer, Bible study, disciplines of engagement, social justice, disciplines of engagement. And you need a kind of healthy balance of both. All that to say, I think that in our current cultural moment, so this is very different if you're going back, you know, 100 years or 50 years to a, a pre-digital age and people don't have a lot going on, or if you're in a context where people are kind of lazy or not doing much with their life, you need to really emphasize disciplines of engagement. But in a, in a culture, at least like the one I live in, where everybody's over busy and tons of stuff to do and work has become the new religion and people are out of touch with their soul, I think you really have – both matter, but you really have to emphasize practices or disciplines of abstinence where you, you kind of step out of the hurry and hustle and you slow yourself down to reconnect with your soul, with God, and with people. And um, I, so, so those are kind of my top four, silence, solitude, Sabbath, simplicity, slowing, as, as these kind of acts of resistance, these like counter practices to the hurry of the modern world and all things Facebook and Wi-Fi and urban noise and kids and like these counter habits that we anchor our soul in God and in tranquility against the kind of overwhelming inertia and gravitational pull of hurry. Yeah, right on. Talk to me about um, what this, how this has kind of fallen into your family life. I know personally, like there's a little bit of like this when you do engage stillness and solitude, especially with kids, you know, like on a weekend, you almost get a little bit like, aren't we supposed to be doing something? Shouldn't we like go somewhere? Shouldn't we be at a soccer game or go buy something? There's like a, right. it's a weird thing. It's hard to explain. Uh, as an Enneagram three, it makes total sense for me. Um, right. But uh, talk like, what's this like for you guys at the family level? I think that's a super, uh, just a big conversation that I'm curious about for how it works for you guys. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I think for sure, you know, Sabbath was was one of the first practices that we came to. And um, it has been so life-changing for us. It's become an anchor practice, not just for like each of us at an individual level, but I think for our family, because Sabbath, like you're reconnecting with God, you're also reconnecting with your soul, you're also reconnecting with each other as a family. And just to know that we have a 24-hour time period every single weekend in our house, it's from, just because of our schedule, it's from Friday night to Saturday late afternoon, We're like, there's no phone, nobody's distracted, nobody's running errands, nobody's doing anything other than like, you know, walking the dog. This is just like, we're together, we're resting, we can be present. If somebody needs to have a four hour conversation with me, they know I'll be there, you know? Mm-hmm. There's no pending something, travel or whatever. Like, this is an anchor for us to come back to. And we find ourselves like, you know, on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, if it's hard, being like, okay, I just, I just, I literally woke up this morning. I've had an exhausting week and thought, okay. I can make it to tonight. It's coming. <laughs> Sabbath is coming. I can do this day because I because I know that Sabbath is coming. Yeah. 
And maybe that's an escape. I don't know, but I don't think so. I think that's like a, a rhythm that's now in my muscle memory. So I think we got into it when the kids were young enough that it's all they've ever known. Um, I think it would be doable, but harder to come in later, mm-hmm. which is what a lot of people are dealing with. And once they've already established weekend routines that are like eight soccer games and shopping and going to the mall and you know running errands and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's just, it's in us now and it's so life-giving and oh my gosh, it's so fun. And there's a lot of flexibility in particular as our kids get older. We have to not be legalistic about it as our kids get into the teenage years. So I think that's there. And the other thing I think, there's this phrase I really like. I don't know who coined it, but um, called, where people talk about a domestic monastery. Hmm. And there's two sides to this idea of a domestic monastery. One is like the the spiritual formation, spiritual discipline side, where you attempt as a parent to create and cultivate a home atmosphere that is monastic, meaning instead of just getting sucked into hurriness and materialism and hedonism and achievement, you create spiritual rhythms that your family's life is ordered around of morning prayer and reading the Bible at night and Sabbath and church on the weekend and you know, doing life in community around a table with meal and practicing hospitality, just these monat and living simply, you know, and lots of time for prayer and sleep. These monastic rhythms where you attempt to view your family, not just as an American family that goes to church on the weekend, but as like almost like a mini domestic monastic order that just where this mom and dad having sex, yeah. <laughs> you know, like um, celibacy is not a part of this at all, but where you're just creating this kind of atmosphere where really your main goal is to live in awareness of God and connection to him and do the little that he's called us to do each day, you know, rather than the American kind of upward and onward. Mm -hmm. The other side though, to the domestic monastery, um, idea is uh, from writers like Ronald Rollheiser, who has an incredible book on this. It's like every parent should read this book. I think it's 90 pages long, but it's like small pages and there's pictures. So it's it's probably like actually 50 pages long. You can read it in 30, 40 minutes. It's one of the best parenting books I've ever read in my life. And um, he basically argues about domestic monastery, but from the opposite angle, that you don't have to curate these moments of like, days and hours of silence and solitude when you're in your cell and nobody interrupts you but that actually if you parent in the in the right way and from the right posture parenting and marriage which are basically the two hardest things that anybody ever does the two most painful things that anybody ever experiences and the two most rewarding things that ever anybody ever experiences that if you do these from the right perspective they can actually have the same effect on you as you know the seven hours of prayer for a Benedictine monk. And he writes about how St. Benedict and other early monastic founders used bells to call the monks to prayer, and parts of that because they didn't have watches. Mm-hmm. But, um, and part of that, they would, or they would have these fixed times of prayer, they'd ring a bell, and then if you were a monk, and still true today, you have to drop whatever you're doing. Like if you're writing a letter, you literally stop mid-sentence. Yeah. If you're gardening, you stop mid-plant. You get up, and you walk to prayer. You don't like, oh, I don't have time for it, I got too much to do today, or I'll come 30 minutes late. You stop what you're doing and you go. And one of the things that Benedict was trying to teach the monks was that time does not belong to you, belongs to God. Your life does not belong. Time is the greatest resource we have. And where your treasure is, will your heart there your heart will be also. So you give your time to God, it doesn't belong to you. All of your life is God's. And Rollheiser writes about how 
the interruptions that make up parenting and marriage can have the same effect on your soul as fixed hour prayer mm-hmm. if you view them as monastic bells. So every time you know your kid wakes up in the middle of the night, that's a mona- that's a bell that's calling you. Your time is not your own. Every time your kid you know falls down and skins their knee and needs to interrupt you and have you help, that's a monastic bell. Every time your partner comes home from a hard day and needs to vent that's a monastic bell. It's an attempt to move up, and this is really what all the spiritual journey is, is the journey from the egoic operating system that we're born with. What do I want? What do I need? What makes me happy? What makes me feel good in the moment? How do I get what I want from other people? All of us start there to a life that is built around love as defined by Jesus, agape, self-giving, no greater love is no one than this that they lay down their life for a friend, right? That's that's love. This is how we know what love. Christ, this is how we know what love is. One John three, Christ has laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our life for another. That's agape. You lay down your life, and so few things. You don't have to be married or have kids to become a loving person at all. Don't misread me. But few things have the potential to transform us into agape from the egoic operating system to agape as the monastic bells, the, the constant yeah. din of interruptions of marriage and family. And so Rollheiser's point is, you know, yes, domestic monastery, create rhythms of prayer, spiritual discipline, scripture, prayer, Sabbath as your family. But then on the other side, recognize you're not a monk. You're not going to have four hours of uninterrupted prayer every morning and perfect silence out in nature. You might live in an apartment in Manhattan and have two kids crawling on top of you from 6 a.m. Those can be your monastic bells. And if you let them function that way in your life, call you to presence in the moment, call you to get off your phone and move toward agape, they will have the same, or or Rollheiser actually argues, an even greater effect on your formation. He writes about some of these monks that went away for 30 years into the desert and came back and discovered that their mom was more contemplative and more loving than they were after just being (laughs) a mom for 30 years, you know, so... Great stuff. Wow, that's so good. What a beautiful shift. I mean, that's a gift that you shared today of just this idea of allowing interruptions to actually just be the doorway. Yes. Um, Not something that we so typically react against, but actually just like welcome, like little welcoming prayers. (laughs) Yeah, Um, 100%. That's a good word, good word. So for you, I mean, like, what's what's the phrase, the sentence, the word that you would just claim on the other side of leaving a lifestyle of hurry? You know, you said something earlier. What were your two words for the year? Simple and quiet. Simple and quiet. I'm not like a one word kind of a guy. I talk too much, (laughs) not too little. So I don't have like, oh, this is the word, you know, shalom, of course, comes to mind. Says Mm -hmm. a teacher of the Bible, that Hebrew word for... It's translated peace, but it's way more than peace. It's like deep well-being, happiness, contentment, you know? So I think if I had to narrow it down to one word, I'd say shalom. But the line that came to me the moment you said that, those two words for your year, was there's a line, it's actually in the epilogue of my book, from Ignatius of Loyola, who I'm increasingly a fan of, just all things Ignatian or Jesuit spirituality. I just more, more and more interested in. And he has this great line, Try to always keep your soul in peace and quietness. Hmm. And, uh, and first off, I, I, I love that's the aim, peace yeah. and quietness. 
you know, reminds me of Paul's line, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Oh, one of my favorite lines in the New Testament. But then I love that Ignatius says, try. (laughs) It's so, it's so realistic. You know, there's this vision of an unhurried life where we just live from peace and quietness and like out of that deep, you know, calm lake kind of at the bottom of our soul of tranquility and we're present to the moment and compassionate and wise and prophetic and just like Jesus in every moment. We just know what to do because we're so unhurried and present to what we're just aware and in tune of what God is doing in that moment with that person. That's the vision. None of us are actually living that, right? Yeah. So that's like, that's the aim. The reality is, oh my gosh, I've just like, I have Facebook and multi-billion dollar multinational corporations attempting to dick me and distract me and I got three kids and I'm tired and I'm grouchy and I'm egoistic and I just want what's best for me and get out of my room, Moses. I wanna just read right now, you know? That's the reality. And the spiritual journey is from the reality to the to the vision. And you're never done, you know? We, we're, you're never like, okay, I got there, you know? I do think that uh, an incredible degree of transformation is possible this side of resurrection way you know i think as a general rule most christians in the west um underestimate the level of change that is possible and overestimate the time frame meaning they expect most of us expect a little bit of change fast when i think what is actually on offer in apprenticeship to jesus is a lot of change slow good word you know, yeah. over 50, 60, 80 years, not five or 10. Yeah. And so I think a lot is possible, but I think, man, the reality of life, kids, family, life happens, you know? And so I think, um, man, this, I just have so much compassion for myself and others that are attempting to move toward this vision. But yeah, I think five, six years after I kind of made in some massive life changes, some very intentional semi-drastic steps in my life, work week, career, finances, I would say, man, life is imperfect and it's hard and I get sucked into hurry every single day. But man, I just feel really content and really happy and really at peace. And man, this is the first time in my entire life as a 39-year-old person that I can say that and have it be honestly true. Right on. That is shalom. Um, yeah, beautiful. So who would you invite to read this book? I'm sure it's for all of us, but, uh, who would you say, Hey, come on board, read these words and, uh, enter the streams of Shalom. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so funny. I, I'm, you know, you write to people that are, you know, you, you naturally write to people that are most similar to yourself. So I'm a, you know, millennial, just barely with three kids in a city with a demanding job that I love, but it's very demanding. And, you know, so, and in a post-Christian kind of world. So of course that's like my first, like, that's what I go to, you know what I mean? But I think that hurry is so pervasive. Merton called it a pervasive form of contemporary <laughs> violence because it, because it kills love. It kills relationship. It kills joy. It kills peace. It kills wisdom. It kills societies. Look at our political atmosphere. And it's so funny. The more I talk, the more I talk to people, the more I'm like, okay, this issue of hurry and busyness, this isn't just like upwardly mobile urbanite people or middle-aged people or people in vocations. This is like everywhere. I, I see 
see this across class, across ethnicity, across gender, across – I mean I was chatting to my father-in-law recently who is in a small town in southern Oregon. He is Mexican. He is not in an urban context. He doesn't have an iPhone. He lives in a small town. You know, I mean just totally different demographic to me, like not remotely the same demographic. And he's like, what are you writing on? And I said, oh, I'm doing a little book on hurry. I didn't even say anything. And his first reason, he literally like sighed, slumped his shoulders back and said, oh, man, do I need to read that. Mm. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is like you're not my target audience, yeah. you know. Um, but, man, I just think that the problem is so pervasive. So I don't want to be that author and be like anybody. But anybody that feels hurried or has a suspicion that maybe they're getting sucked into the machine um, and and wants a vision of a different kind of life and some very practical steps to move toward that different kind of life. That's who it's for. Right on. Well, hey, super grateful for you and your work in the world for taking time to chat with us today. Thank Um, you. It's an honor to be with you. For uh, for our listeners, want to follow you and your work, where would you send them? Yeah, easy. JohnMarkComer.com. Everything's there. Instagram. Uh, my main podcast is the Bridgetown Church Podcast, where I teach and pastor. And then I do a little thing, a little podcast called This Cultural Moment with my buddy Mark Sayers from Oz. But uh, it's all there. Right on, man. Well, you uh, you got a seat at our table anytime you want to bring the wisdom. So I hope we can have you back one day. You are so kind. And I hope we get to have uh, number three at some point. Yes. We'll see what happens. Right on, right on. Hey, before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe right there on your phone. That's probably where you're listening. Uh, And if you enjoyed this, would you mind leaving us a review? One of the things that we're wanting to do is get this information out to as many people as we can. And we are finding that uh, when people leave good, true, and beautiful reviews, uh, that helps us get this information out more and more to people all across the world. I do not take it lightly uh, that you invite me to ride shotgun with you in your car, Uh, You allow these conversations to be a part of your jogs. You allow these conversations to be a part of the communities and families and businesses that you've been entrusted. Uh, I do not take that lightly at all, and I am thrilled uh, that you have joined us here at this table, at this conversation. There's always a seat left. There's always room for more, uh, and we are just so grateful for you guys joining us here at Good, True, and Beautiful. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid. Listen to the bluebirds sing and be love.